Hey there, Scott here from Social Energy Presents, and thanks for joining us for this episode we're sure you'll love because if you love all things rock and roll, stay tuned for this one. Our guest today is Mike Fraser, an internationally acclaimed music producer, recording engineer, and mixer who's helped shape the careers and sounds of some of rock's most iconic bands. Yeah! The list of acts he's worked with in the studio is literally a who's who of rock royalty, and they include ACDC, Aerosmith, Brian Adams, Metallica, Loverboy, Motley Crue, Van Halen, and literally dozens and dozens of others. And today, Mike joins us from his home in Langley, British Columbia for an intimate look at his career and to bring us up to speed on what he's been working on next. So sit back, relax, get ready as Social Energy now presents you with your Backstage Pass. Just I want to get right off because me and you know a ton of people together, but I, I want to go back and I, me and you have met a few times in social circles and stuff. But um, with where I know anybody who knows of your work knows that you're based in Vancouver, but where were you actually born and raised? Uh, I was born in Burnaby. Okay. And, and most of my life raised out here. I live in Langley, which is um, 45 minutes outside of Vancouver. So yeah. And, and Burnaby's a sub Burnaby's a suburb of Vancouver, you know? Yeah. 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 It's basically the boundary road. Boundary road is you, you cross boundary road, you're in Burnaby. That's right. Yeah. So order a crows and you're in Vancouver. <laughs> right. Whereabouts in Burnaby? Uh, well, I was born at Grace Hospital. Grew up our uh, first few years of my life, I guess, it was in Victory Street in Imperial. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I know that area. Where I would have gone to Burnaby South if I stayed mm -hmm. in school. That's sort of where Tommy Stewart was raised. Oh, okay. From Chopper. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and his dad was the chief of police of Vancouver. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah remember that? Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Um, so okay, so I, I gotta, I gotta go. So you're talking about school. What was school like for you? Were you a good student? Were you? you know, oh, did you care? Yeah. Uh, you know, I was an A student right through probably grade eight, uh, and then discovered music, girls, drinking, you know, all that stuff. And I quit school towards the end of grade nine. So school wasn't for me. I had a lot of run-ins with the teachers. Just didn't, you know, I got all my assignments done. I was getting great marks, but no, I had to stay and do this. And I just went, you know, screw you. School's not for me. So I quit. Wow. That, yeah. that runs a lot of parallels with my life, except I, di I didn't, I didn't do drugs or drink. I, it was just all about music and girls. <laughs> Cause yeah. girls got your music, music, your music got your girls. Um, but yeah, but I, I don't have my grade 10. Right. Yeah, yeah. my dad, Same. because I didn't care. I didn't care about school at all. I cared about was music. My dad actually let me quit school to go on the road. Nice. Yeah, well, my a, dad let me quit too, but I went into, he had his own little uh, logging company. Like we didn't go up the mountains and log the big stuff. We we're more uh, lower mainland taking out all the, the firewood and stuff. So we'd go and, and log off a 60 acre lot and get it all down to bare dirt so the guy could farm it and we'd take the wood and all that. So I, I quit school to go into business with my dad doing that for a couple of years. So did you play uh, in a band at all? Were you like... Briefly when I was in high school, we formed a little garage band and uh, we actually played a few school dances in our school and a couple other schools. Uh, we didn't have a singer. So it was all instrumental, but it wasn't like Satriani instrumental. We just played the music minus a singer. You know? <laughs> but everybody seemed to like it. But it was at that point, I think, that planted the seed of my love for music. Um, and I learned really quickly I wasn't a good enough guitar player to make any money at that. So 
I put that in the, the back bank and quit school and went work for, for my dad. Then in the winter here in, in, you know, sort of the lower mainland, we don't have the big snowfall, but we used to shut down for the winter because everything just got too muddy. You'd be getting stuck everywhere. So we just shut down for two or three months. And I was making a pretty decent wage. And, uh, you know, for the first while, I was like, great. I got, you know, two, three months off. But I just got sick of watching the, the young and restless and as the world turns and all that stuff. And I thought, ah, I got I to gotta change. I got to do something. Oh, I love music. Uh, so I thought, hey, I'll get into music, you know, like maybe behind the scenes or something, right? So I called up a few studios. One of the first ones I called was Little Mountain Sound. Uh, they weren't hiring, but they needed a janitor. So I thought, the hell, it's my foot in the door. And so that's how I kind of started down my path. How'd that, how'd that work out for you? Uh, not great. <laughs> you know, I still can't clean toilets. <laughs> <laughs> so you literally went from sweeping the floors to being to where you are. That's yeah. unbelievable. That's yeah. like storybook. That's crazy. And it's and so lucky. so you so you started what how old were you when you started as you say sweeping the floor at Little Mountain? Uh, oh God, eighteen. Wow. And w how long was it before you were actually brought into a session? That's a bit of a blur because it was almost immediate because you, know, you do your janitor stuff. And there's work going on. I was like, Oh, you just kind of wander in and they can, Oh, can you get me a coffee? And Oh, sure. And then, you know, uh, but I would say three or four months, you know, before it was actually, okay, Hey, you're going to set the session up for me. Or, and, you know, you know, you know enough to, to, to know which mic is Mike, what now and, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's like three or four months. Yeah. So how do you, so how do you get from there? So, so that's the thing is that, okay. So, I mean, you're playing in a, a, a basement band. You're not going to know, you might know sure microphones and you know, the odd thing, you know, all the time, but now you're in a studio where you're dealing with Neumann's and you know, like, you know, yeah. what, what board did they have? They didn't, they didn't have a, a Neve board in Little Mountain back then, did they? We did. We had both studios, Studio A and B, both had Neve boards. Okay. With the, the 1086 CQs on them. Um, and then it wasn't until a little bit later on when we started doing, because I think the Loverboy stuff, the first record was uh, done on a Neve. And then by the time we did the second record, we might've had it one of our first SSLs. In yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think the SSL came in on, by the second album, I think. Yeah. I seem to recall some about that, that time yeah. frame. But okay, so, so, <laughs> so I'm just trying to put, I'm trying to, you know, unpack all this. So, so now you're a janitor and you, because you're a janitor, you're sort of wandering around because you got, you, you want to get in that control room. You want to yeah. see what's going on because yeah. that's where your real love is. You know, nobody has a passion for, like you say, cleaning toilets. Uh -uh. So, so you're in there and there's, Hey, give me a, give me a coffee, Mike. Blah, blah, blah. Well, how do you end up learning how to, because did you ever get into aligning tapes and all that stuff as well? You know what? I never did because we had a, a great, uh, tech there at Little Mountain. And that's one of the reasons Little Mountain became the big name it was, was this guy named John Vertasic. Oh, John Vertasic. He was, he, that guy, that guy was gold to everybody. He was an ever. absolute genius. But his philosophy, um, unlikely you know, later on in life when I've traveled uh, around the world to a lot of different studios, they've always taught their tape ops and their assistants how to align tape and how that. John was adamant we weren't allowed to touch it. Because he says, I want to know it's done right. And if I'm doing it, I know it's done right. If you're doing it and this guy at night's doing it and this, that, then we never know where this tape machine is. So he was adamant. So I never really learned. I know the basics. And 
you know, I could probably align a machine, but you know, no, none of us were ever school taught. It was all just what you picked up on the job too, you know? Yeah, so that's the thing, is that you never actually went to what they call a, an audio school, like a Columbia College or one of these places. You actually learned on the job. So now, who was your direct person? Was, was it Bob Rock back in those days? Was he your, your direct guy? Well, when, Early on? when I first started there, Little Mountain was owned and run by uh, Griffith Gibson Productions, which is a big jingle yeah. house uh, company, and that's all they did was jingles. So when I first started, there's a janitor. I'd do, you know, set up some of the jingles. They were done by 5 or 6 p.m. The doors got shut, locked, and that was the end of it. So Bob Rock was had been working there as an assistant when I was janitoring, and we were all doing jingles. So, you know, one of my main mentors at that point was a guy named Roger Monk, who still runs his own jingle house uh, called uh, Dick and Rogers down in Gastown. They still do a ton of jingles and cartoon stuff. But anyways, he was... He was a great, great engineer. Uh, he kind of taught with the old school. They would record to analog tape, but they would record to the level so that when you were doing your mix, you just bring everything up to zero and that was your mix. So you would record to tape like you were mixing. So that's, that's a, a, almost a lost art because now people just sort of fill it up and then, you know, deal with it later, you know? So I learned off Roger and then, uh, you know, at night, like I said, the studio shut down. So it wasn't long after Bob Rock started going in at night because that's when he could kind of get free studio time. And he was uh, starting to engineer and co and produce all the local punk bands, you know, like DOA and and um, uh, Pointed Sticks and all those guys, right? So I'd finish up my day with Roger. I'd just about be out the door and I'd hear this music blasting in one of the back studios. So I'd poke my head in, there's Bob in there. I'm like, hey, this is pretty cool. I said, mind if I hang out and give you a hand? He goes, yeah, sure, man, whatever you want. So, so I ended up hanging out with Bob all night. You know, yeah. we'd be finished at like 12 or one or something like that. But I had to be back at four in the morning to do the janitor stuff and then work all day with Roger, the jingles, and then back in there with Bob. So, so they got, you know, I was like 19 then or whatever. And, you know, he could keep going, but you know, after 20 hour days and an hour drive home, I was like wearing out. So I brought my sleeping bag in and I'd virtually stayed in the loading bay of the studio for a year and a half while I was doing Wow. It. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Holy cow. Well, so you were living in Langley at this time? Yeah, oh yeah, I've always lived out here. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, so yeah, because that's that. Yeah, at rush hour, forget it. But you wouldn't be dealing with rush hours so much. No, but. unless you had an early morning session, and then you'd have to. Yeah. You'd hit. The, I'd usually hit morning rush hour doing the jingles because you know I'd have to be in there by eight to start setting up jingles. Or nine thirty, ten. So I'd get that morning rush, but I'd miss it all coming home. So. So are you saying you were assisting in jingles within three to four months? Yep. Holy yep. smokes! I, but you were still doing janitor work. Yeah. Wow. For a little while. I didn't do the janitor. I think it was less than a year I was doing the janitor stuff because I started getting so busy with Roger and then nights with Bob, <laughs> you know, sleep in a few mornings, can't make a few of the janitor. And, you know, they kind of got tired of things. I wasn't a great janitor, you know. So they got a service in eventually, right? But um, that's all good. And so, so you're, you're working in the studio, you're doing all these jingles. So they're saying, Hey, set, set up that 441 over there. You learn to know what that is. You learn to know what this is. You know, what, um, 
Now, it's funny, you were talking about the lost art of having a zero-sum mix or whatever they used to call that. Well, it makes sense because back then there was no automated mixing. No. Once the automated mixing came in, who cares? It's going to remember for you, right? Yeah. So so it was just easy to pull everything up to zero, and there there it is. But I I have to relay a story that I heard about you. Uh, A good friend of ours, well, I've worked with him for 32 years now, Brent Knudsen. Oh, hey. He said one time he was in there, I think he was in there with Tim Kreitch, and he was doing a demo or something, and they were struggling getting this mix together. And you happened to walk into the control room. And he said, what's going on? He said, ah, we can't get this mix. Now, you mind if I have a try? Sure. <laughs> Brent says, you walked up to the board, looked at the track sheet. Went, and he said, it was almost perfect just from you eyeballing it. <laughs> it was like the most amazing thing he's ever seen. <laughs> oh, by the way, we had Mike Reno on the show. I relayed that message to him. And he, and he said to say hi to you. He says, you guys uh, hang out a lot still. Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah, we've been best buddies for a long time you know when we're back doing their records bob was bruce fairburn you know great famous guy here in vancouver kind of you know him bruce uh, him and bob and i kind of was the team that did a lot of the stuff but anyways we're doing the lover boy records and back in those days it was all manual mixing right like mm-hmm. uh i think by the time we did the first lover boy we had uh, got our 24 track two inch machine but you know up to then it was a 16 track but we got 24 tracks Soon after that, you would um, stick the machines together so you have 48 tracks. But anyways, it was all, you know, we'd bring the stuff, no automated boards, so we'd bring the mix up and all that. Well, it was like a a choreographed dance. So usually there was, well, there was at least me, Bob, and Bruce. Sometimes we'd have Paul Dean and Mike Reno and whatever in. So there'd be five, six of us. So as the song's going, you know, my, one of my moves is I have to reach over and, and move the toms, you know, do, ride the toms. So the symbols of the tom tracks would be too much. So you'd ride the toms up. And then that was, oh, yeah, right. Somebody's got to push the echo on the lead vocal. So it was this, you had all your moves to do. So when you got the mix, it was just everybody got their moves correctly. But they're always different. So we're like, oh, that was really close. We need one with a little bit more lead vocal. Well, that would just be a different mix because... Yeah. The amounts you would push the faders or maybe you'd slightly do too much echo or not enough or like it was, but what a lot of fun. It was, yeah. you know, by the time we're ready to start printing mixes, you know, probably take, you know, half or three quarters of the day to get the mix ready. And by the time you're ready to print mixes, then you all got to kind of sit there and learn your, your moves. So that would take a, an hour or two. And then you're really in the moment, kind of like doing a live show, man. Like, you know, you've rehearsed all week and now we're doing our live show. It's like, Oh, I missed that. But that was great. You know? So, uh, you know, it was about an hour or two printing the mix. And that was a lot That's of the thing. I mean, even, even with pro tools, I mean, doing like, I, I'm never doing, I mean, I do do finished mixes here, but it's certainly not the level you're working at by any stretch, you know, but I mean, even, when I'm doing mixes, Pro Tools, which is all automated and all this stuff, it can take me a day doing a demo, just getting the mix, you know? And of course, I never trust my ears in the studio. So I'm like, I've I've said to a few people, I go out to my SUV and I play it on the SUV and then I bring it to my wife's car and, you know, trying to get different things because I always notice what's wrong with it. My, My ears aren't tuned to my room somehow, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not but uh, bringing back Jean Vitasic, my very first little studio I had in Coquitlam, you know that guy? He actually came out to my house for free and looked at my room and, and told me where to put stuff. Wow. I couldn't believe it. Like, yeah. like I, I hardly knew the guy. 
I, I phoned him up one day. Oh, sure. I'd be glad to help you out. He drove out to my house in Coquitlam. Yeah. Like, what a, what a guy. He was just into it. He loved it all. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. How did he pass away? What happened? Uh, cancer. It was, eh? Shit. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's it's happened. Happened. I think it was colon cancer. So, you know, he used to always say, you guys, you go. He said, I didn't want the finger up my bum. He says, but you go. You go get it checked. Yeah. 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 So true. Yeah, but that's 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 sad. Anyway, but we would better get back to some happy stuff because that bothers me. <laughs> so, okay, so that's okay. Now we moved into Loverboy. So by the time you work with Loverboy, you're second engineer, I would say, because because yeah, yeah. you'd have Bruce, you'd have Bruce Fairburn, you'd have Bob Rock as his first engineer. So, okay, can you tell everybody? what the hierarchy is in the recording studio at that level. So you've got the producer yep. and you got the engineer. So basically Bruce Fairburn's going, this is what I envision. Bob Rock is saying, okay, this is okay. I think we can do it this way. Bob Rock is saying to you, what do you think, Mike? Can you do this? And you're out there adjusting the microphones. Is that how it works? Yeah, can you pretty much it? Yeah. Bruce, Bruce is responsible for the band, the songs, you know, making sure the songs are right. Uh, nowadays, a lot of producers write the songs. Uh, Bruce didn't, that I saw ever really write anything, but you know, if he thought the songs could be stronger, he would hook them up with songwriters, you know, like Jim Valance or, right. or Diane Warren, or, you know, he would always make sure the songs are ready to go before we go into the studio, because, you know, if you're writing in the studio, it's just a, a waste of time. And then, you know, back then, like, you know, studio time was super expensive. It's come down a lot over the years, but you know, you're spending a lot of money in the studio. So Bruce was loved trimming things down. And Bob, as the engineer, you're the sort of conduit between what the producer envisions and how to actually physically do it. So if you likened it to doing a movie, uh, the producer is like the director and the engineer is like the cameraman. So the engineers are running all the gear. He's making the, the sound decisions and, and the shaping of the sounds and everything. <clears throat> and then as a second engineer, I'm basically, you know, just Bob's assistant. So if he needs something set up or, you know, I could hear Bob and Bruce talking about, okay, well, after we're done this, this uh, vocal part, uh, you know, let's get Mike, Mike in to do his vocals or something like that. Well, I'd go, so I'd scoot off. And on the side, I'd start getting all that ready. So when Mike showed up, we're ready to go. It wasn't like, oh, can you set this up? You know, so it was always about saving time in the studio. So you kind of second guess, keep your ear to the ground, know what's going on and be ready for everything, you know? So can you answer a question for me? That's a, it's a wide rumor. I've heard it for years about the vocal on Janie's Got a Gun by Aerosmith. You must have been there for that. Yes, sir. I heard that he did that in one pass into an SM7 with two overdubs. Probably, because a lot of that stuff was done. Um, even when we were tracking, he, we had him out in a little vocal booth. All his vocals was, was done on SM7. Mm -hmm. He would be in his little vocal booth, and then sometimes we'd keep the live vocal. You know, you'd have a little bit of drum bleed, but we would keep it because he'd come in and sing it again. And it was like, you know, Bruce, you know, this vibe was way better on that section. Let's keep that. So, but Steven was an amazing, you know, they're totally sober during all those records. So mm -hmm. he was just all on point, you know, and all that, um, that harmony stuff at the end, you know, Janie's got a, that's just Steven one take. Oh, give me another track. 
Give me another track, which is always tough when you're on analog now at this point, because you know, <laughs> okay, we got to find a track somewhere, and yeah, uh, but you know, he'd just pull these harmonies out of the air and just say, "Okay, give me another track," and he'd sing this harmony. Let me double that. Okay, oh, oh, I got another idea, and you know, and he'd throw all this stuff out, and you know, quite often Bruce would come in at night because you know this is us at night. You know, Bruce used to go home sort of dinner shortly after dinner, and we'd just carry on with Bruce. Says, "Oh, can you?" do the solo tonight can you do this we just goof around with steven quite often so he'd throw a lot of ideas on tape and quite often you know bruce would come and say oh i like that no nope, let's get rid of that let's trim that down but you know he heard the janie's thing and he goes we're keeping it all right to the end that's why they end up being such a long fade out and you know yeah, he's one of my favorite rock and roll singers that guy he's got so much rhythm in him you know and and really good pitch and yeah. phrasing. Yeah. Just, uh, just an amazing singer. Yeah, that we gotta get that transition. Like you from you from where you were into Loverboy. Now of course, was it was it the Loverboy sound that really brought a lot of these like the Bon Jovis and Aerosmith and all that stuff, that brought them to Vancouver, correct? For sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh because Loverboy was, you know, one of the first Canadian bands in a while, anyways, let's say in a while, that really made uh, some noise down the States. For whatever reason, we had got a lot of great music up here, and then it would just hit that brick wall of, a, of the border. But, you know, for some reason, that translated down there, and, you know, it sold a couple million whatever records down there. So it really went out on the airwaves down there and got really well known. And I believe, you know, John or Bon Jovi or one of the guys had heard it and said, hey, what about this Bruce Fairburn guy or, or something like that, right? So that's what attracted the Bon Jovis up. And, you know, to be honest, that's when it really sort of split Vancouver wide open, you know. Was it John, was it John Bon Jovi that came up first or was it Aerosmith? I think uh, it was Bon Jovi. No, I think it was Aerosmith. No, it was. It was because, yeah, like I said, it was the it was Outlaws. And I because I remember John Bon Jovi coming in to I was working at a place called the Embassy. Remember that down on uh, Davies Street? Embassy Club? Yeah, the, the Embassy yeah. Club. Or, yeah. yeah, it was called the Embassy. And John Bon Jovi, the Bon Jovi band came in and started playing songs off Slippery When Wet to try them out in front of the people. All right. Oh, and cool. that was the only hit single they had before that was Runaway. Yeah. And yeah. you said to John, hey, John, how about uh, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I want a credit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, boy, oh boy, that that's that's unbelievable. So so Aerosmith Bon Jovi, and then of course, then then you start getting like, you know, I mean, Marc LaFrance. I mean, all like he did so much work with uh with, yeah. oh he was, unbelievable. In there, he was in there sometimes more days than I was. <laughs> I know. And Motley and Motley Crue? Good Lord. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, no, and I, I mean, Mark, Mark has told me a few times. You know, Bob Brock has run into him since thinking. You know, can you, when you were recording that album, did you really think the kickstart my heart was going to be the big one? And it really was. It, you know, it was, it, it was sort of a secondary signal, single. But that song has made so much money in the movies and TV shows. Yeah, yeah. It just keeps going and going. And that's the stuff you don't realize when you're doing that kind of stuff. You think, you know. Even back then, well, you know, we've always been so trained that it's got to be the radio. So where's the radio hit? Radio, 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 which isn't such a thing anymore. Yeah. Right? I mean, it certainly it's isn't. It's so streamed and all that. But even back then, it was radio, radio, radio. But you never 
really understood the the sync licenses like you know if you get it into a movie or or you know well, a little bit later on a video game or or all that other stuff can be so much bigger than what the radio is radio's got your life you're hot for you know a couple of weeks maybe if you're lucky you know a couple of months but you know what i mean like uh but you get a sync license of these movies every time that's played oh oh you get a little bit out of that you know it's it's amazing especially when you get a band like uh like motley Crue and bon jovi too for that matter who were smart enough to own their own masters yeah those yeah. guys are making all the money there you go like unbelievable like that was smart move that was that's that's smart business boy for uh, guys that, especially the motley crew guys you know they, they sort of came from a pretty drug infested background yeah you know but they were the, the and Nick Nicky Six, I think, was he's the he's the main guy, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's sort of he's, he's the he's the business smarts, right? Yeah, he is. Yeah, unbelievable! Wow. So, okay, so tell me how um, from there, of course, now ACDC starts comes calling. Mm -hmm. Now they've been very very good for your career. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Lucked out on that one. <laughs> uh, so was the first album Thunderstruck? Yeah. Yeah. Now they had recorded that uh, in a studio in Ireland, I believe, with uh, their brother uh, George. Oh and yeah, right, right. That's right, because he was there for producer at first. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they just did all the basic tracks, and then something happened—a family illness or something. Anyways, he couldn't finish the record, so they started looking through, uh, you know, who the and at that time, you know, Bruce has got the Aerosmith and the Bon Jovi's and all that, and said, okay, well, this guy seems to know what he's doing. Let's go check him out. So Malcolm came out with their their then manager and um, came to the studio and had a little meeting with Bruce. They hit it off, and Bruce says, yeah, sure, let's do it. So they came to Vancouver. Uh, they had all their tracks done, but, uh, <clears throat> but they needed the vocals sung and all the solos done, right? So... Uh, First couple songs, get in, start singing. It's like, oh, shoot, the key is wrong for Brian. Uh, we got to change the key of the song. So we had to re-record the guitars and bass to change the key to a different uh, different thing. And uh, Malcolm and Angus liked the sound of the instrument so much better, we ended up re-redoing all the songs. And um, we even actually, I think we recorded two songs. We had Chris Slade, who was drummer at that point, came in and recorded two songs. So... Um, you know, I guess I just cemented myself into their, their little family, uh, because they liked the sound that I was getting for them. So well, lucky well, we just had a number one album with them. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? Eh? No kidding. Not and bad. so and you've gone, you've gone right up to the conductor's chair, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I gotta say Brendan O'Brien produced that one and, you know, it, it was a lot of it was Brendan and Angus, man, you know, they really pulled it out on that one. Yeah, Malcolm was kind of the business guy of that band, wasn't he? Mal was the main guy. He was the definitely the leader. You know, it was him and Angus, but you know, Mal was, you know, being a little bit older, uh, you know, he was he was definitely driving the train. And that was that was cancer once again, wasn't it? Alzheimer. Oh yeah. Oh jeez. I always thought it was a brain yeah. cancer. Yeah, no. Well, Alzheimer of all things. Warm up, you know, like all your blood vessels just die off, right? And then then your brain, you just eventually forget to breathe and forget oh. to, your heart. And yeah, it's pretty sad. With Alzheimer's, that's what happens. 
That's how oh, you I die. didn't realize that. I, I couldn't figure out why a person would die from Alzheimer's. I, I always thought it was just memory, but it's actually your entire body function starts. Well, with- if your brain's shutting down and, you know, first things and pretty obvious things are your memory and then function starts going. And then once your function starts going at some point, because, you know, we're not conscious of keeping our heart beating or breathing. It's, it's an auto thing that's in your brain. Well, if that shuts down. Yeah. And you're like, oh, well, why am I? Why am I not breathing? Like, you know, it's. Yeah, good point. I never, I never even put that together. Weird. I guess I should probably sit up. I look. Like... <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sort of, I'm sort of lounging around, you know. So, I mean, you've produced so many iconic songs and albums and such. When you're doing your work, do you get a sense when the work's almost done with a particular album, which one's going to be a hit? Are you at that point now where you can just tell? You know what, Scott? It's a weird, elusive thing. So my answer to that would be no. <laughs> like, you know, when we're doing Thunderstruck, you know, and right, the right. song almost done, and then Angus had this idea, you know, Bruce says, oh, we need an intro. So he says, oh, I got this idea I've been working on. So, okay. So he lights a cigarette, puts it in his mouth, and it starts out, okay, roll the tape. So he goes, okay, that's cool. So, he plays through the whole intro and like, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. And keeps going. And the verse starts and Angus is still going. And I'm like, okay, still going. Chorus comes. He's still going. And Bruce is going, yeah, just keep the tape roll. So one take, Angus does that through the whole song. And at the end of the song, the ass and the smoke goes <laughs> like that. Wow, Bruce, how's that? You like that, mate? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. He said, let's you know, try another pass. We tried a couple other passes, but we ended up going with that first take. So if you listen to the mix now, it's throughout the whole song. I mean, there's places in the mix that we, we ducked it down under and you can barely yeah. hear it, but yeah. it's one take through the whole song. But that song, we did the song, none of us had, you know, it was a great song, but none of us had the that feeling that it was going to become one of their iconic songs up up there with, you know, back and black and, and uh, highway to hell and hell's bells and all like, it's one of their. Oh, it's a, it's an anthem. Songs. It's like, we never had an inkling about that at all. How about, how about now when you look back on that though, and you hear these songs of just now, like they become anthems, rock anthems. I still can't Did, believe it. I still think of. Back do you think, do you think cool? back in the studio at all these weird little things that have been going on when they're trying to figure it out and yeah. sort of work their way through it. And then there's bands like, uh, did a well a couple records but we did a record with a band called blue murder and it was john sykes who wrote co-wrote a, a lot of that big um, white snake record with coverdale i mean you right. know, he was in tigers of pantang he was in thin lizzy thin, thin lizzy yeah yeah awesome awesome guitar player uh so we doing that record carmine a piece on drums tony frank franklin on bass i mean it was just a dream team we had geffen 100 percent behind us it was just it was huge, done, done, done. Finished the record. Uh, well, funny little side story. Uh, Joan was trying to find a singer and he was trying to get Glenn Hughes and a whole bunch of other guys and just couldn't get it together. So John says, ah, fuck it, I'll sing. And uh, <laughs> we didn't know he could sing. So Bob says, well, go down, go down to L.A. He says, you know, do the vocals with John. Let's, you know, see how it turns out. So we go down to L.A. and we'd sent, had the tapes shipped down to us. Well, I'm down there 10 days and no tapes yet. So we're like, where the hell's the tapes? 
oh, stuck in customs. We're like, stuck in customs. Oh, so, you know, it's on the big two inch reels, right? We had probably had 30 of them being sent down. Well, the band's called Blue Murder. One of the childs, one of the songs is called Sex Child. <laughs> and we had a slave and a master reel. So you get Blue Murder, Sex Child, Slave and Master. The border guys are saying, no, we're not allowing these out until you produce a <laughs> machine that can play back these snuff films. He thought they were porn oh, snuff films. Oh, so, my, oh uh, my God. Almost three weeks before we could clear the tapes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But, you know, so we did this record, you know, one of the best records I've ever done. I mean, I love that record. And over the years, I've run into so many people that say, what happened? A blue, that, that was my favorite band. You know, to this day, there's bars in, in uh, down the States you can go into and the jukebox is Blue Murder. But did it ever sell? No, it just was one of those records that didn't do it. So like I say, sometimes you think something's going to be huge and it just, what happened to that? And then other songs that you're like, oh, that was a good song. And that's like one of the biggest things. So wow. I can't ever tell. Somebody described it as a pe the, the pieces of the pie. Everything has to be in order. You have to have the management. You have to have the promotion. You have to have the record company. You have to have, and if one of those pieces is missing, you can't sell the pie. It just, it, nobody's going to buy it. And it's, it's a weird, it's a weird sort of thing about that, you know? Well, Mick, here's another example though. So we're doing this uh, record for the Dan Reed project. So Bruce Fairburn produced it. He had done all these other records. Um, Bill Graham was Dan's manager. So the oh. big name is Bill Graham. We're on Poly Polygram, which is at that time was one of the biggest kind of rock labels down the States. We're doing this record that was a cross between funk and, and rock and funk kind of stuff, right? So we're doing, finish the record off. It's fantastic. This is, this is gonna hit it out of the park. Well, shortly before that, uh, one of the main uh, A&R guys, Derek Shulman, that worked for Poly Polygram, quit, and it got passed over to his other guy. Uh, Bill Graham died. Um, da, 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 da. And this thing just kind of went, went flat. And, you know, a lot of the radio sort of stuff back to us was, you know, uh, the funk guy, it's too rocky for the funk guys and it's too funky for the rock guys. It just sort of hit between the cracks. But I think it was less than six months later, Living Color comes out, but their rock funk record and bam, away yeah. it goes. Yeah. So you can think you have all, well, we got it all lined up on this one. Here, give me a good, <laughs> it's like. Is it possible that Bill Graham, had he lived, it might've put it over the top though? Possibly, but I think it was a little bit before its time. Like it's, it's down to timing. You know, that's why Slippery Wooden Wet was so huge. Everybody was starving for that type of music to come out and it was crafted and put together in a perfect way that it would appeal to a large audience that was craving for that kind of rock, real melodic, not wimpy rock, it rocked, but it had a melody and you could sing along to it as an anthem and it filled the stadiums and, you know, it's just timing. It's interesting. Uh, you were talking about the uh, ACDC and writing songs and all of a sudden it's, it's not in Brian Johnson's the right range. It's not in the right key form. And so they have to rewrite it. And it, the biggest, the, the biggest one, I, I remember that I, I did a gig um, with uh, Don Felder. 
I did a gig and and so he was telling me a story about because he was pretty much instrumental on Hotel California. It was his music and the band finished, you know, lyrically and that sort of thing. But they had done the entire song and Don Henley would take the tape home and listen in the car, but he would just head tone, you know, sort of get his phrasing together. It came time to sing it and it was totally out of his range. So anybody who knows that song, it's it's a, it's basically to play it properly. It's capered on the seventh fret, and you played in E minor position. They had done the entire song in E minor, and so they had to redo the entire song so that Don Henley could sing it. So it would like there you go. I mean, it, and that's like imagine how much time was spent on that. You know? Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't uncommon too because you know you'd have the song written, and usually the the vocalist was had an idea of melody still working on lyrics. Um, but like you say, you know, you just kind of hum it along in your head and mm, 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 oh yeah, that'll be, Oh, and that'll be great. And on the piano, Oh, that's going to sound gorgeous and all that. But a little later, you know, Bruce, I saw, you know, in my experience, Bruce is really good. He says, no, I want you singing along as we track the record. And sometimes it's 30, 40 takes. So, it's just about done after that many times, but it's to get the feel for how he's going to sing it. How is the the range? Because if we're going to change the key or change anything, now is the time to do it. And it also gives the the band guys idea where the phrasing, the vocal is, so they're not playing through it. They can, you know, like the old time music in fifties, sixties, you know, whatever would accompany the, the vocalist. It was all about the vocalist and the accompaniment. And then we, that kind of changed. So it was all about the music and the vocalist just kind of put the words to it. You know, it's this weird thing. We've gone wow. back and forth through history with all that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, there's so many times. It's true what you're saying is that the melody, uh, the melody and phrasing and stuff is done after the bed tracks are done. And especially when you get in boutique studios like mine, like I remember having Jerry Adolph come over and play on an album that I was producing out of my home. And so he came over and set up and we, we did the tracks. And then after the track was done, he says, he says man, he says, that's a great song. He says, but I just wish I would have heard it at the end. You know, I would have played something totally different, yeah. you know. Because yeah. you end up doing fills where you wouldn't have and not playing fills where you should have and all that stuff. Because the, the, the melody guides the song, you know? And it does. And you know, as musicians, and you're playing along to sort of a blank thing, um, you don't want to just fill a hole. Oh, here's a gap. Oh, well, here, I'll make that a little more interesting. Or I'll do a little lead thing in here. Or I'll do a vocal scat in here. And then they go, yeah, but that was the solo. Or that was the, like, it's better to play as a unit. <laughs> Because yeah. you all know where you're going to be sitting and what's going on uh, than, I, than it is the piece of record. Like today, a lot of records are pieced together. Throw the drums down first. Okay, now let's do bass. Now, you know, there's not a lot of live stuff. And, you know, I, I get it. Yeah, it's expensive to have everybody in the studio and try and get it all live. But, you know, to me, that's where you get the best stuff. John, John Shields is going to bust me if I don't say this because uh, these, these things go out internationally. And I just said Jerry Adolph and threw it out there because me and you know who he is. Jerry Adolph is one of the most in-demand session drummers in Vancouver. Yeah, so that's, that's, and that's the thing is that when you're playing in a live band, and I was going to bring this up with, with bring back the Loverboy phenomenon, which yeah. it was a phenomenon in, for, for, for Vancouver at the time. Yeah. 
is that a band will rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and they play live shows and all that stuff leading up to that first album. So they sort of know what they're going to do delivering that album. Yeah. Then you get a band like Loverboy, who now they're doing, they're on tour and they're writing their second album on tour. And they, the only time they're really playing it is that sound check. They can't play it in front of people. Mm -hmm. I, it's possible they might have thrown a song in there, but I doubt it. You know, oh, you only not. got you only got twenty five minutes usually backing yeah. up. Everybody wants to hear the hit. Yeah, 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 hits and out of there. So now their next album is even better and bigger than the first album. So, which that's the thing is that you have so much energy that goes into the first album. The second album is always oh, so hard for somebody, especially a, a, a new band. Yeah, you know. Yeah, because you're spending the entire time touring. And writing in your hotel room or wherever you can, and trying to get the teach the band at sound check and that sort of thing, and and then you get into the studio and you got to do it, you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know what I find too is like you know, like you say, the band's first record. You know, some of them have had twenty years of writing songs and got you know forty songs to sort of compile down to ten or twelve songs that, you know, have all been worked on in various stages and developed into these great songs. So now you put your record out, you've got less than a year to get the next one out and you got to beat the first record. And it's like, it's so hard to do uh, unless you're you know, a really proficient writer and can come up because, you know, all those songs that you used before for the first record, all the not good ones were pushed to the side so it's not like he could grab one of those and say oh that, that'll be our lead-off single for the next record or very not very often that that happens you know so a lot of pressure is on a band and uh you know their second and third records you know back in our day were the more important ones the first one's got the attention the second one sort of slotted you in and then the third one hit, hit you home you know so yeah i think that's why uh there's a lot more co-writes going on records back then too, you know, like when they're going for that AO, AOR hit kind of thing, <clears throat> you yeah. know. Well, that's what they'll bring in, like you say, a Jim Valance or a Diane Warren. Um, like I'm with, with Aerosmith, you know, they had some ideas of songs, but they sat back. Um, Michael Ciccoli, uh, you probably know Michael as yeah. well, uh, you know, dear friend of mine, but he, we, we worked together with Jim Valance years ago. And he, he said, you know what, what it is about Jim? He's a craftsman. He's, he's, he's not just a songwriter. He understands the craft. He, it's like a cabinet maker who understands each type of wood. And he, he can take your ideas and go, if you just do this and this and this, you know? And that's where he's so instrumental on. He's, that's why he's become such a huge writer for all these great bands out there, not just Brian. Yeah. Because you know? yeah. he can take these ideas and make them into something, like the Aerosmiths and the Ozzy Osbournes and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. He's going to be on our show and, next you know, week. I Justin, can't wait to talk to him about that. And then Justin, for your use, you know, rather than here's a Jim Vallant song, he makes it a Brian Adams song, or now let's make this an Aerosmith song. You know, he can uh, adjust it and work with the band and the writers to make it theirs and not his. He yeah. said uh, he said something one time to me that uh, Deuce is Wild, the Aerosmith song that was, I think was done for a movie. Mm. But the entire song is Jim. Steven Tyler just sang over top of it. And he, he sent them a demo, but they, they were in such a hurry to get it out for the movie. They, Steven Tyler just sang over it and sent it out. Oh, <laughs> so well. it's not even Aerosmith playing on it. It's actually Jim Valance. Yeah, I, I don't remember that because I know I mixed that song, but I don't remember what. Yeah. Cool. 
Yeah, I know. It's pretty amazing. So there, there you go. I mean, he, he's not a, he's a multifaceted person. He understands music from, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're Beatle brothers. Me and him, probably once a week, we send things back and forth about the Beatles to this day. Right we'll find some nugget that we didn't notice before or something. Yeah. You know? It's hilarious. <laughs> It's insane. In addition to all the incredible credits you have, Mike, for uh, albums, you also have uh, movie soundtracks. And I loved uh, the ACDC work for uh, Iron Man 2. And I was wondering, um, what do you do different for a soundtrack from your role than you do for like an album? You know, most of the soundtracks that I think my mixes are on were probably just pulled <coughs> from the albums for that okay. and added or licensed on or whatever. Uh, right. A lot of times when I'm mixing, I'll also mix, um, I don't like mixing stems. So stems or, you know, a separate drum track, a separate guitar, a separate, you know, uh, but I will do instrumentals. So no lead vocals or stuff like that. So sometimes they'll use portions of those for soundtracks. But for the Iron Man, and I, um, you know, I can't remember what ended up in the, in the movie, but originally the whole movie was going to be completely ACDC. Like wow. No, no, other, no other songs. I don't think wow. it ended up that way. Yeah. But uh, they sent me the, the, all, the, uh, all the music for all of uh, Back in Black. Hmm. So I, I got the multi-track tapes, but, you know, obviously years later, you know, the, the, the actual physical tapes are probably not getting in very good shape, but they had transferred it to, to Pro Tools at, at 192 mix. So I had to work in 192. Wow. Wow. So I got to remix basically all of Back in Black for that movie. So I had to mix the song, but I had to do it. So in this section, oh, they wanted the vocal out here. They wanted that. And so I had to, you know, match it pretty damn close to the whole record. So that was that was a lot of fun to do. And uh, I've got to tell you on that, on, on back and black, you know, Ang's wailing away, soloing away in the tag there as, as a song fades out and he's, you know, well, that goes on for probably another minute and a half and it gets better. The soloing gets better, but they couldn't keep yeah, it. Yeah. You know, the band starts falling apart and they couldn't have faded it out. So, uh, I was pretty sure I did myself a mix of that without the fade, but I can't find it to this day. <laughs> but it was pretty incredible. That was, that was, different, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Do you make any different decisions um, when you're doing a soundtrack for like theater positioning, like surround sound and that kind of thing compared to making an album? For, for that one, I was not asked to do like a, a theater mix for the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's just all strictly stereo. Uh, they'll put in their stereo thing and then they do all their. Have you done that? Uh, I, I do for um, like live DVDs. I mix in surround. Mm. But my philosophy for that is you're, we're all looking at the stage. The band's going bombastic. So basically what I do is I do a, a, a wide stereo. So instead of stereo hit me like this, you know, I'll go sort of three and nine o'clock and then that's the band mm. but the real magic to me with a live rock format for dvd you know surround is you got to have as many um vocal mics as you can out there because then you can place it all there like if you've got 12 vocal mics behind you when that one guy whistles 
he's there. You know what I'm saying? If oh, the crowd? Got, you mean crowd mics? Yeah. If you've only got four, well, that whistle is in probably two of those, so he's sort of here. But when you can put him there or put him there or put him there, it really makes – it fools your brain into like, yeah, I'm at the show, man. This is great. And wow. that's more important than what – what you're hearing from the band because you know i've seen some some live stuff even of, of some small stages and and won't mention the band but you know they're looking and oh man this sounds fantastic and oh there's the acoustic guitar player there but he's hitting me in the here my ear behind so i was like why is the acoustic guitar here when i see him that like it doesn't make sense to me yeah if i'm watching a surround sound of a live show i'd want to hear the crowd behind me the way i would in a live show yeah, yeah. yeah. but that's that's brilliant i never thought about that yeah. about the exact position. mountain had a had a great experience doing the, the rolling stones thing i've read a few things about him with uh was it martin scorsese that that directed the the live stones thing or whatever so bob was doing the mixes and martin went, no no it's not right not right and bob was pulling his ear out so they finally had a a meeting about it and he goes you know he says when i cut to the drums he says that's what i want to hear is when i cut to the the shot of the of of uh, watts on his drums he says i want the drums to be right there and then the guitar is over here so he had bob mix uh, in segments that were according to his cuts. And Bob says, well, I don't know what you're cutting. So so they figured out how to do a rough cut of the whole movie, how it was basically going to be, and then Bob had to mix to that. So each segment of his mix, he had to change to what the camera perspective was. So it was like uh, you or I were now, wherever the camera went, that's where our ears were. So that's what you heard. It wasn't the music <laughs> and different cuts of the band, like all our modern videos are. It's like, and I've never seen it, so I don't know. <laughs> that just reminds me of those shredded videos. <laughs> Well, they got those shredded videos where you'll see as, as the pa camera pans the drums, you hear, <laughs> and it go, as the camera pans by, the drums disappear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, I laugh at that stuff. So I got to bring up Mutt Lang. So, cause, so Back in Black, that was the famous Mutt Lang production. Yeah. That's, what, that's one of the biggest selling albums of all time. I think it's the biggest selling album of all time, Back in Black. Up there, yeah. Yeah. Now... You're not going to tell me this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, I have, I have some Def Leppard tracks, mm -hmm. stems, stems, mm -hmm. and when I brought them up, I couldn't believe how noisy the tracks were. Oh, when what? you mix them together, yeah. sounds like the record. But when you listen to them individually, it's like, wow. It's don't. Do you find sometimes when you're going back to some of those older things like ACDC, the Back in Black is older than Def Leppard. Mm -hmm. Like, like, do you find when you're listening to those tracks, do you find that they're clean? Do you find that they're they're noisy in comparison to nowadays? Do you find they're comparable? You know, that's tough. Uh, maybe because I'm more old school guy, but I like noisy tracks. Like sometimes I'll get people sending me stuff where they've put a gate in between all the tracks. Like even on the Tom mics, they've got to gate it out till the Toms come in and then, oh, there's the Toms and... Like I love everything rattling away and squeaking away. And, you know, even on the guitars, you know, a little bit of feedback, the amp buzz, the point, like I love all that. Cause that's what makes it organic and real to me, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, acoustic guitars, like, you know, some people go through and painstakingly try and get rid of the, the squeak, 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 squeak. Yeah. 
Well, it's like going through a vocal and getting rid of all the breaths. It's like I'm watching something like that and I'm getting breathless because when are they going to breathe? I don't hear them breathing, you know? So I love all that noise stuff. Now for sure. uh, When I go back and, you know, I'm, I'm, giant analog lover supporter guy uh when i finally get to mix something that was done on analog or uh uh you know at least bounce through analog i'm like oh this is gonna be great well oh yeah this hiss like especially if you're going down to two and everybody stops there's this big long fade out of the symbols and everything and it's <laughs> like the ocean like what the hell all oh, right that's why we switched to digital like yeah usually yeah. we're more ears were more tuned to it back in the day now we're tuned to silence so it's like oh my god how can i get this out smoothly and make it sound natural and uh so yeah some of that stuff bugs me but well jimmy jimmy page was a big proponent like you of of leaving all the natural noises and hums and buzzes and clicks in. Uh, apparently there was a, a story when he was working in Vancouver, he was doing, I think he was doing a Coverdale Page album. Was, was that the one they were doing there? Yeah. And uh, where somebody had gone in and cleaned up his track and he came back the next day and said, what the hell did you do? <laughs> I like that stuff. Why did you clean it up? I want that noise. They thought they were doing him a favor. Yeah, well, actually that was me. So Was it really? <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah, we're, down, we're down in Miami. Like we'd done all the tracking here in Vancouver, and then we went down to Miami to do the overdubs. Is that Criteria? Yeah, that Criteria. And the, both David and Jimmy were living down there at the time, so that's when we went to Miami. But they only wanted to work. Like we started at noon or one, and we'd work till four or five in the afternoon, five days a week. <laughs> so it ended up taking us nine months to get through this record. But you know. <laughs> Basically every day, um, Jimmy would show up or whatever, and then we'd do guitars for one day, or uh, the next day would be David would show up, we'd do vocals for one day. So one day Jimmy came in, and we did a whole bunch of acoustic guitars in one song, and and uh, you know four or five o'clock he was up. He says, "I've had it." He says, uh, "Let's go back tomorrow and see what we got." So okay, so he goes home. Now we're doing this on analog, but. We had a way of taking it off to this two-track machine, locking it up digitally, and fly it back in. So, you know, these guitars are kind of all over the place. So I'll just organize them a bit, put them a little bit more in time, and, you know, this and that. So, you know, spend an hour or two doing that. Come in the morning, Jimmy listens to it, and he goes, what happened to the guitars? I said, oh, I just, you know, fixed them up a bit, moved them around, cleaned them up a bit. And he goes, well, put them back. <laughs> so it was an awesome lesson to me, like, you know, that's when I started listening to, to music as like there's mat like if there's magic, it doesn't matter if it's out of tune or out of time or whatever. If it's uh, evoking an emotion in you, then it's right. Like I said about Jim Valance and I still we still listening to those nuggets because there's so many things on Beatle albums. There's just so many mistakes and weird anomalies that happen. And that's what keeps you listening to them after all these years, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's not to laugh at it. It's, it's again, what makes it real and, and magic. And that's the magic. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, tell me why I was listening to it. And, and it, I, I think it's in, this is a C. So the opening chords would be D minor G, D minor G, D minor G. Tell me C why, to A minor. I'm listening. One somebody's playing D minor. Somebody else is playing a D seventh. 
major, like major. Um, and they're both playing it, and it's on every chorus. And I'm going, but it works somehow, and it's a mistake. Yeah. It's like your ears get used to it, you know? Uh, uh. Very odd. just want to say quickly here, too, when we're doing the um, the Aerosmith stuff, you know, sometimes things beginning change and all that. Uh, and we did a song called a Ragdoll, right? Yeah. Ragdoll. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, it was originally called Ragtime. And it was, you know, like the ragtime dancing, whatever. So, and our guy, John Verta uh, John Claudner had come up and he did not want it to be ragtime. It reminded me of, uh, you know, some chick on her period or something like that. You've got to change this to ragdoll. It can't be ragtime. But, but, oh, but the song's done. We've mixed it. No, no. So Stephen had to go out and change all the, the lyrics and the choruses. But if you listen to the mix... We didn't change the background, so they're all still singing ragtime. Really? Ragdoll. So listen to it. The background is still going ragtime. You know what I have? I have an early demo of uh, of Do It Like a Lady. Oh, right. Instead of, instead, because they, they changed it from Do It Like a Lady to Dude Looks Like a Lady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I've got the original demo of that. I don't know oh, how cool. I got it. Right I got on. it somewhere. Yeah, that's there's there might, you must witness a lot of changes like that from inception to final cut. My God, because there's so much work that gets done right in front of your eyes. Yeah, less and less, I'd say more these days, just because of editing and all that. It's like it's you don't see any of those, especially when you finally got it done and then at the last second, like another last second thing was uh, loving an elevator. Uh, Clutter said. Oh, we need to have a breakdown in this song. We're like, what the hell? So, so I had to edit a breakdown. So basically, that whole going down, da, 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 and then the guitar solo, that breakdown, that's just the drums from the tag edited on two inch tape together to make a loop. And we just recorded some more instruments over it. So that was all done after the mix. Wow. Remix that section and edit it in. <laughs> yeah. Well, the funny, funny thing is, Claudner is the guy that actually stars in the video for yeah. Dude Looks Like a Lady. Yeah. Right? He's the guy, if, if, you, if you guys see the video, he's the guy with the, the guy with the big beard and long hair. Yeah. And then to change the, the drums up a bit, I put a like a delay on it so it's going but basically it's the same drum tracks from the, the tag that's just added in there. So, so I do a little Stuart Copeland, you add, a, add, a, add a, an echo on it so you get an extra hit. Exactly. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> well, Stuart Copeland used to record with, I guess he used to use an echoplex in those days. He'd actually oh. play to the echoplex. Yeah. So could, yeah. And, cool. and uh, what, there, was, there was something else that I remember thinking, like, how did they play that? Because it's so perfect. And I didn't realize it was actually just an echo. With a, it's, I, I thought a guy was playing a keyboard. He's going, he's not. He's just playing one note. He's just playing one note. He's like, daga, daga, daga. You know, how stupid of me. Yeah. But yeah, but uh, also I think there's less and less of that um, in the studio creation going on because more and more people have studios like what I've got here mm -hmm. where you can actually work out all that stuff. So when you go into the studio, you're not wasting a lot of valuable time. That's you right. know, you're sort of going in. I would heard that that's why um, Steve Tyler was able to do uh, Janie's Got a Gun in, in such a short amount of time is because the pre-production was so perfect for that song. They, he knew what he was going to do down to the breath, you know. 
I, I guess so. I wasn't a part for the pre-production that would have been sort of Bruce before we came into the studio, but I will say, you know, Bruce would go home a lot of times at dinner, seven o'clock kind of thing. And we'd stay till midnight or one and, you know, whatever. So they're paying for the day anyway. So Stephen wanted to play. Okay, cool. Let's sing all these background vocals. So it wasn't taking up uh, studio time the next day when Bruce had all the other stuff he wanted to do, he could listen to all these, Oh, great. Well, that's done. That marked that off our list to do. So in a way we're saving money by, you know, doing it after hours, you know? Well, his, his, his family time was fairly important to him back in those days. He used to coach his kids. He used to coach his kids baseball team and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he'd go home at dinner time or something like that. He'd go home, make supper and then sometimes have to coach the kids. So yeah, no, his family time was pretty important to him. You know I mean? He loved uh, doing it in the studio, but he's really efficient man. And he, you know, got done in his eight or 10 hours what he wanted doing. And, you know, sometimes we'd stay after, but it was just to do bonus stuff, you know? There's some, some famous stories. Charles brought up one from the old days. This is before you worked with them, but where Steven Tyler used a sugar packet for a shaker on Sweet Emotion. Was there, is there anything like that that's been done in front of you, like where, where you didn't have something, so you sort of just used something else? I know Randy Backman talks about the percussion. They used the, the bottom of a, I think it was a Javex bottle on, on, ta- on taking care of business. They just beat it like a, a conga. Oh, cool. Yeah. To get the gallop. We, we'd make a few, we made a few things. Uh, like there's a, what the hell song was that? We did? Steve and I did it. Uh, they're called Guppy Plunges. So then I got a credit for that, you know, on, on my thing. But um, they're basically just lip smacks. Oh, okay. We do them. They almost sound like these weird hand claps. We did that. Uh, got a few flesh bongos in. So we'd get a couple of the dancers from, you know, number five or whoever. They'd come in and be bare-bottomed uh, congos and stuff. So we did a lot <laughs> of stuff like that. I mean, we had all the... Uh, the percussion stuff. And I got to tell you with Steven, with his uh, sense of timing, cause he used to be a drummer. Right. And that's why yeah. he drove Joey nuts. But like, I've never seen anybody like one take, he'd have the tambourine done or shakers. Like, and he had this cool thing where he would always do them in a figure of eight. And that's how he got them so perfect all the time, but try and, you know, draw a figure of eight with these two things in your hand. Like it's, I, I can't do it. And he just, you know, it's just amazing. So, you know, the, as a percussionist, it's just amazing. That's, you know, what adds a lot of the flavor to, to a lot of the, their tracks is that subtle percussion stuff. But we didn't do sugar packets. <laughs> they Were probably you? weren't allowed them anymore. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. Who knows what they would have smuggled inside of them. <laughs> you don't have to drop names, although we would love if you did. What are two or three of the craziest things you saw happen in the studio with some of these bands? Because some of these bands obviously have have an, uh, some notoriety to their to their antics. So, what? Drop us a couple. God, you know, I don't know if there's the crazy stuff, you know, because we're all pretty uh, hardcore work orientated. Uh, you know, I will say on the Blue Murder record, uh, you know, we would work till. 11 30 12 so that we could have enough time to get down to the strip bar uh i think the strip bar is closed at 12 or something right so we get down there say hey the girls line them up we'd all go to club soda afterwards or one of the bars afterwards the strippers would come out and we'd all hang out party there and then 
And on a lot of the nights, uh, they would come back to the studio and we'd hang out there till like three or four in the morning. <laughs> and then, you know, at 10 in the morning when Bob came in, me and John, he's just so hung over. And we're like, oh my God. And we'd say, oh, that's it. We're not drinking anything anymore. And blah, blah. by the time, you know, five o'clock would roll around, we'd go like, so where are we going tonight? <laughs> that, was blue, that was the Blue Murders session, man. It was every night. It was crazy. I remember when uh, Bon Jovi played, I think they played, did they play BC Plays? It was a huge gig. And their sound man used to be my sound man in Shama. Oh, wow. Mike Renault. So I couldn't go to the show. I was playing somewhere typical. I had a gig. So I sent my son and Brent Knudsen yeah. and, and his wife at the time, her girlfriend, I mean. And so they went to the concert. Afterwards, I went down to, uh, yeah, and they took my son home because he was just a little guy. Mm -hmm. And I went to hang out with Mike. Well, we all get into this van with Bon Jovi. And so the first thing they want to do is go to number five Orange. So because that's why the album was called Slippery When Wet, because they used to go watch the strippers after their they're tracking yeah, right out of the shower yeah yeah exactly so we go down we go down to to number five orange and then i mean nothing was going on it was pretty much closed you know we went there for a drink it was sort of this so they could reminisce with the owner sort of thing and stuff and then we get back in the van and we went to club soda and they cordoned off a whole section you know it was it was quite magical it was a really nice time they're yeah. a good bunch of guys i thought richie sambor was especially a good guy yeah uh, yeah all that whole band was awesome you know to me, the bigger the band, the better people they are. You're like, you know, some of the, the smaller bands are, are a little bit more chip on your shoulder. But, you know, those, those big bands, I've never run into one guy that's got a giant ego that you're like, oh, sure, he loves himself. Like, they're all sweethearts as far from my experience. You know? Well, the, the work ethic to get to that level. Yeah. You've got to be, you know. I mean... And like they say, you know, you you kick, you meet the same people on the way up as you do on the way down. So you better be respectful all along. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I remember one time, you know, the, the ACDC guys were in town. Well, it was probably for a Razor's Edge uh, record. And we all went out to Club Soda. And, and uh, Shirley, you know, Shirley was the manager yeah. there or whatever. Yeah. yeah. The whole area cordoned off and the place was just packed and Angus and Mel are coming through. And Angus doesn't drink, right? He's never drank or done drugs in his life. And, you know, oh, get me out of here or whatever. And, oh, come on, Ang. It'll be fun. So go in there and, and Mal's like, oh, what's what's all this with this velvet cord and all this? Shit? Oh, just, you know, to keep you guys. And says, oh, get rid of it. She says, oh, you sure? Oh, you're going to be, you know, ah, get rid of it. So she gets rid of the cord and sure enough, everybody comes piling in. But you know what? After about two minutes, when they realized they could stand around them and ask them whatever, that mayhem went away. It's yeah. almost like that cordon off creates a mayhem that you want to get behind there and get to it. As soon as the cords went away, it just went normal. Everybody went back to the dance floor. Some people, oh, so you're Angus Young, then, yeah. Oh, uh, nice to meet you. <laughs> like, you know, it's sometimes you create this thing where it doesn't need to be there. Yeah, it's like a dog on a leash. It's like they say, if your dog is, is being really aggressive on a leash, drop the leash. Yeah. Immediately, immediately they just calm right down because yeah. they're being aggressive because they feel they have to. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of the same sort of the same thing with that. If, if you're creating a barrier, then people feel like, you know, the, the, it's like looking at a, a zoo or something. Yeah, yeah. I want to yeah. be on the other side of that. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, the Roxy was was always good for that. I mean, I played at the Roxy House Band for five years, and the, the celebrities that would come through that place, and nobody really bothered them. Like they they go up and say hi, can I buy you a drink? Or you know, sort of Canadian hospitality. You know, I remember uh, George Went came in and he stood in front of a pole and watched our whole set. And so I walked up and said, "Hey, can I buy you a beer?" You know, Norm from Cheers, right? Yeah. Can I buy you a beer? He says, "No." I said, "But I love a B fifty two. So I'm like, "I bought a B fifty two. It was just great. You know, it's like because and nobody bothered him. He stood there the whole set and watched the band. Not one person bothered him. You nice. know, I think yeah. that's what they love about Vancouver." Yeah. At least back then, you're saying it's worse. And you're saying it's bad now. Same, but we're getting to be a bigger metropolis, more people, and it's changed a, a, a lot from what I've seen, like in yeah. the '80s and '90s. But uh, you know, generally, we're not as bad as some of the other bigger towns in you know, around the world. Like you know, we're, we're still pretty nice and polite here. You know, Dave Grohl made it to number one. And like one, he's the drummer of Nirvana. Then he's the front man, lead singer, songwriter of, of Foo Fighters. I mean, he made it in two bands in two totally different ways. Like, he's sort of like the Brady of rock and roll, isn't he? <laughs> the, the what? The Brady. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No kidding. So what's so good guy. Oh, awesome. Because uh, he comes off as such a, a regular old Joe. You know, when you, you see him in interviews and stuff, and, you know, basically he just talks of like Nirvana was this garage band that just got lucky breaks and the way they went. Like, you know, he loves what they're doing, but basically his message to you know, all the little bands and everybody says, you know, don't give up just because you're a garage band. You don't need the big lights and PA to start out. Like, get it and practice, practice and do your songs and somebody's going to love them. You know, and he, he's right. And that's you can still see that in Dave, the way he plays. You know, he played some drums on the on the Zach uh, Brown stuff, uh, you know, and the way he sings. Uh, he, he's still a kid. He still loves doing music and whatever, whatever it takes. You know, even when he's, you know, in front of the cameras now and doing his his. Um, documentaries and stuff he loves being in front of the camera and not in an egotistical way he's just he's like a kid like he's so excited to share this with oh I want to and show you this and oh this is the greatest thing like he is an amazing guy yeah I I, I admire him and and the fact that you got to work with him and Zach Brown who I think that yeah. Zach Brown band I think is one of the greatest bands that's come out in the past 20 years those guys are all so good unbelievable amazing and like Zach, the players. That's another guy that just pulls melodies and harmonies. Like he'll just be sitting there on his guitar and go, I got an idea. And it's like, holy crap. <laughs> Does he exclusively play a nylon string guitar all the time? He loves that sound. Yeah. What he does. And then the other guys have their sound and it yeah. kind of, mixes together well it sure works good lord that yeah. stuff oh man there's nothing like cruising your car but listening to zach brown it's just the best kind of music for that sort of it's great driving music you know yeah, i know right I just love it yeah yeah a lot of fun and, and fun fun lyrics you know and yeah. it's yeah I, I i've yet to see them live i i got it next time i get a chance oh once 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 we could go to live again <laughs> yeah. live what is live <laughs> yeah what is this live you speak of this Aren't we live this, right now <laughs> no. yeah this magical live you speak of ah oh, god what's what's your favorite album that you did what's your what's your number one album you're proud, most proud of that's a tough one you know um like the dan reed was fun and i thought very innovative innovative so that was a fun one. We had a lot of fun doing that. Dan and I stayed up. I think it was seven 
days straight, no sleep, wow. no just coffee and cigarettes for seven days. At the first day and a half, you sort of get into this zone. And then it was just like, so then we said, well, let's just see how long we could do it. So we finished doing all this. <laughs> okay. And then I remember going home the day. So I'm going home at like 11 a.m. or noon after not sleeping for seven days. Nice, warm day, drive along the freeway. I'm like, oh, shit, I don't know if I can make it home. <laughs> and I made it home, slept for six hours, I woke up and then felt like I thought I would literally sleep for three days, but slept for six hours, woke up, and like, oh, okay. But, you know, that that was a lot of fun. That record, The Blue Murder, was a lot of fun. Uh, a band over in uh, London that did a few records with uh, called Thunder were great, great guys. We golfed and played cricket and hung out, and it was a, quite an English experience. So that was a lot of fun. So I've got a lot of records that were a lot of fun, and, and each one has its special moment it, really it's interesting because you haven't mentioned any of the big bands these are these are other bands that you've actually had more fun with why is that just because they're 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 at a different stage or maybe maybe so i don't know uh you know some of the bigger bands you know are there to do the job and you know like i've had a lot of fun with with brian at acdc him and i went and golfed many many times uh, a lot of great dinners but you know, I'm just picking off the ones. Well, it's it's, it's possible because the, the those songs from the big acts you hear all the time, and the, whereas a band like Blue Murder that was so great and you never hear it, you know, yeah. it almost becomes like this little jewel in your in your in your back pocket. Yeah, that could be. You know, it was just there, there are different periods. You know, like if you're in there with the Aerosmiths or even the ACDC guys, and they're lovely guys and great hangout. You're there to do a job, whereas. You know, the Thunder guys were doing a job, but then we'd go, ah, let's knock off early and go have a round of golf or let's start late tomorrow. Let's go have a round of golf or, you know, we were making it an adventure. And, and a lot of those records were earlier on where you could do that kind of stuff and the budgets were bigger. So you weren't too worried about the money the studios cost in here. You're like, ah, hey, let's go have some fun or let's, you know, hey, let's make tonight a party night and have uh a bunch of the girlfriends and fans down or so, you know, whatever reasons, you know, uh, some of the smaller stuff w was fun. Yeah. I, I don't know if, I don't know if you called, but I think about, I was maybe a year or so ago. I, I found this track where Mark, Mark sang and played drums, but we, we'd done a remake of Thunderstruck. And I think I sent it to you. I could try, I was trying to, I was trying to do my, my, my best Mike Fraser on it, you know, trying to make it sound as big as I could with my equipment. And you were nice. You went, Hey, that sounds good. But I bet you were going, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Nice one, Mick. Nice one, Mick. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Impress me again. <laughs> Funny. Everybody's everybody's got samples, Mick. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> they better not be my samples. <laughs> yeah, God, I think I think Bob Rock samples are out there for all the world to pick at. I don't know who's. It's said. funny. Sometimes I'll get a project in from you know some band from wherever in the world, and they'll send me the tracks up, and I'll put it, and they've already put a couple kick samples or a snare sample, and I'll bring it up. And go, oh, hey. That's me and Bob's kick right there, you know, death kick or whatever. Like, yeah, wow, the, de the death, the death kick. I remember that one. Yeah. What? What did that death kick? That's that's got like a long, long tail on it. It's like it's through some sort of a drum machine as well or something, isn't it? 
I, I don't even remember anymore. But that's that's part of the secret, especially through the '80s, where where everything was way more ambient. Is you wanted long tails on them because then you could hide it in the track better. You know, if if you had a bit of ambience with the drum and, you're, and adding a sample, the sound would poo, poo, poo. You know, you could hear it, but if it went poo, poo, you could kind of hide it a little better. So that was kind of the thing there. Yeah, that made sense. Yeah, but thank you so much, Mike. This has been oh, great. Thanks, well, thanks, thanks Mike. Great. Thank you so much, Mike. Oh, this is going to be such fun, and, and it has been, man. It's been yeah. really great. Yeah, yeah it's, it's and, awesome. You know, I've got to say, you know, you also are one of the reasons that I, I got into this this business, you know, seeing you in, in the uh, Shaman and both Fiddler days. Do you remember the playing the both? Oh, Fiddler? God, yeah. So that was me when I was in my band days in 70. Eight or seventy-eight. That'd be about seventy-eight. Yeah, and seeing you guys up there and and just like holy fuck, I wish I could do this, and knowing I couldn't play like that, you know. So you were part of my inspiration to. Well, that's really nice to say. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. It's really nice. Funny, have a a chat. I know we've talked before, and we we kind of know, but this is the first time we've actually had to sit down and talk for. Two and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll I'll make sure to, I'll make sure to tell uh, the boys. Well, you've done some work with Jeff Neal recently, haven't you? Didn't you mix something for Jeff? Yeah. Did I? Oh. I could have swore you did. There was something you worked on for Jeff, and I forget what it was. Or no, or maybe no, no. I think maybe he, maybe he wanted you to. I, but you know that I don't the, know. There's so many things come across in the whatever i remember you know i think well the last time i saw him he was doing the the toque show yeah right right a year and well, a half ago like before well when we could still go live so whenever whatever yeah that was. well that was that was cool because toque does some street art stuff and so yeah i'm doing what kind of love is this well you know what kind of love is this was supposed to be a shama song really yeah oh, jeff had started cool. writing that song in shama and then he brought it to street Heart, and that was actually one of the first songs they had that made it to the top 10 that they wrote because they of course they did under my thumb and cover songs but yeah, yeah. Uh, what kind of love is this was actually their song yeah but it was actually supposed to be a shama song now wasn't wow. i thought i heard that that was done as a demo and they tried to redo it and couldn't do it so they used the demo on that too right yeah and i had heard a story that spider played drums on it but then i heard that that was wrong i think it is bob ego on it right yeah yeah yeah, yeah i love i love all the the old canadian history of, of rock because you know it's again it's a handful of people that were doing the music you know like all the guys from Winnipeg with Randy and them and the street heart guys and then you guys. And, yeah. you know, there's just so many crossroads and everybody's sort of intermingled and it's just, it's, it's fascinating. Well, yeah. there's, you know, it, well, it, it's interesting because that's, that's where Tuke is all about. Like Tuke being these Canadian guys that are in the States now playing with all these big bands and they get, they're redoing Canadian songs that the Americans have never heard. Yeah. And bringing it to the Americans. Like, look at all these great songs we have, you know? That's right. Yeah. So it's great for the Canadian. songwriters. They're all Canadian, too, so they're allowed to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's definitely a pedigree there, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And That's nobody in the States knows what a toque is anyway. So. <laughs> exactly. We talked about that with Corey, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Corey, Corey Turka was on the show, so we were talking oh, about yeah. that a bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Great. And and of course, when when Jeff played with Tuke, he was taking Corey's place. I guess Corey must have been out with Kelly Clarkson or something. I think so. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Yeah. 
Yeah. Anyway, but thanks a lot, Mike. I really appreciate it. Um, I'll let I'll let Scott take it from here. And thanks, right. buddy. Well, yeah. Hey, thank thanks you. for ha having me, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure and great. Oh, thank you, Mike. Can you guys uh, just make it easy and uh, you know make me look good. Just. Make sure when you color correct everything. <laughs> We'd love to have you back when things are back up and running in the studio and uh, check in on you and see what you're working on next. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I'd love to. Awesome. Down in the awesome, second. Mike. Thank you so much, Mike. That'd be Thanks great, Mike. Everybody. Take care. Cheers, buddy. Hey, thanks for joining us. Check out our many other podcasts featuring vignettes and full episodes from a growing list of recording artists and other music insiders. And please like, share, and subscribe to our channel so we can bring you more great content from this and many other shows we're now producing. Available both on podcast and video on demand.